Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. We're going to be uh, uh, finishing out the chapter today, looking at verses 43 through 54. If you have one of our uh, black Bibles, it's on page 945. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Like I said, we're going to finish up the chapter, and by the time we get done here, we're going to end up uh, in the in. We're going to end this section that began back in chapter two. We're going to end at the same place we started in Cana of Galilee, where Jesus turned the water into wine. Okay, that was the first miracle we're going to look at, or the first sign we're going to look at. The second sign in John's gospel this morning. And, and while it's very clear that this second sign is an incredible sign, it's a it's an important miracle that Jesus uh, performs. It's not actually the main point of the passage. It's not actually the main point of the passage. And getting to the main point is going to be pivotal to our faith, to our understanding not only of who Christ is, but our our need, our greater need for him. And so we just prayed uh, as part of our our service time, but I want to pray specifically uh, that God would, would reveal himself to us through this passage. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us your spirit who knows the mind of of you, who knows the mind of God. Paul says we have the mind of Christ. So we pray that with that mind, with the Spirit, in unity with the Son and the Father, that you would open our hearts uh, to receive your word together in humility, that we might be changed by it. That you would open our eyes to see what is here and more importantly, who is here and that you would cause us to respond in obedience and deeper faith. In Christ's name, amen. A while back, we were uh, driving with our kids, and uh, we passed a sign. I don't remember the name of the town, so we'll, just, we'll say it was for Manunk, okay? We passed a sign that says, you know, Manunk, seven miles away, or whatever. And one of my kids in uh, the van said, saw the sign, read, the, read, read Manunk, recognized it, and said, oh, are we in Manunk? And, and uh, we had to say, no, we're not in Manunk. It's, the sign is telling us where Manunk is, right? It's, it's, it, the sign is not the place. The sign directs us to the place. We could say it this way uh, as we think about John's gospel. The sign is not the person. It directs us to the person. The sign is not the person. It directs us to the person. You see, we, we can easily convince ourselves that we're trusting Christ when what we're really doing is looking at the signs and thinking that we're there. And so here's our main idea this morning. It's two parts. We're going to look at each part individually, but we need to hear them together, okay? Here's our main point. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. That's part one. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. Real faith is dependent upon Christ alone. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. Real faith is dependent upon Christ alone. Let's look at the first part. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. We'll dig in here to the word of the Lord in John chapter 4. Look at verse 43. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. Now, if you remember from the beginning of chapter 4 last week, 
Jesus started to leave for Galilee from Judea. These are regions in, uh, in the, the land there. And he had to travel through Samaria, right? Not because it was uh, the shortest route to take, even though it was the shortest route to take, but because he was sent by the Heavenly Father to seek and save the lost. And there were lost people in Samaria. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He revealed himself to the Samaritan woman whom he met at the well. And what did she do? She believed in him, and then she ran into town and told everybody else about him. And then they ran out, and they heard uh, from him, and they believed because of her testimony, and then they believed because of what he said. The big revival in Samaria. And then they invited Jesus to stay for two days, and he did. And then after those two days were up, he resumed his trip to Galilee. That's where verse 43 starts for us. Now, Galilee was a predominantly Jewish region. So you had Jewish region, Judea, then you had Samaria in the middle, which was half Jew, half non-Jew. And then you had Galilee up in the north, which was fully Jewish again. And last week we learned that the Jews hated the Samaritans because they saw them as, as half-breeds, as half-Jews who had defiled themselves with foreign nations and foreign gods of those foreign nations uh, way back in their, in their history. Now the irony in all of this is that Jesus was leaving the Samaritans who had welcomed him into their town, at the well, into their hearts, and they freely believed in him, and he was returning to his own people, to the, to the Jews who either actively opposed him or had the wrong idea about him altogether. They were clueless, right? Jesus didn't perform any signs in Samaria. Didn't perform any signs in Samaria. Yeah, he told the, the woman everything she ever did. He knew supernaturally what she, uh, all, all the, the things about her past, but he, he told her the truth, and, and she believed, and then he told the Samaritans the truth, and they believed. They didn't see signs, and yet they still came to the conclusion, what did it say? That this really is the Savior of the world. Jesus was honored by the Samaritans, but he had no honor in his own country. John's wording in verse 45 reflects this irony. The Galileans welcomed Jesus, he says, but they didn't do it because... They saw him as the Messiah. They welcomed him as the miracle worker because they saw the signs that he did in Jerusalem. You remember John chapter 2, the end of it, verse 23 through 25? It says, while he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Jesus, however, did not believe their belief, right? Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew himself, he knew what was in man. We're, we're told right here that these Galileans were down there at that festival, and they saw all those signs, but they didn't have real faith in Jesus. They were entertained by him, but they weren't dependent on him. They didn't leave in dependence upon him. They were curious, but they weren't, they weren't committed Again, we recall John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. Now, the Galileans, these, these Jewish people, may have welcomed Jesus when he entered their region, but they didn't receive him by faith. They were miracle junkies looking for the next fix, chasing after signs. 
But superficial faith is not just a first century problem, right? We, we know this. We recognize this. Even today, people are entertained by Jesus without actually being dependent upon him. They, they feed curiosity and they starve commitment. We have a couple different terms to describe this kind of behavior. We call it consumer Christianity or church hopping. Maybe you're familiar with these things. These are people who come to hear the preacher and not the word. Doesn't matter what he's saying as long as he says it well, right? They prefer the worship music at one church or the coffee at another or the service length at another and so on, and they, they just keep rotating from church to church based on how they feel for that Sunday. I feel like some good worship music today, so that's where I'll go. They bounce from church to church, taking from each one without ever committing to any of them. Then there's others who are convinced that Jesus came to make us all healthy, wealthy, and happy. And if you just sow a seed of faith, a.k.a. Uh, donate $1,000 or more to their ministry, then, then you'll get that job promotion. That pesky cancer will go away. You'll find true love. All these things will, will happen for you. This is the prosperity gospel, and these preachers use Jesus as a sideshow in order to promote themselves and to deceive people into thinking that dependence upon them is actually dependence upon Christ. It's not true. It's a lie. Now, I just listed some extreme examples, but there's, there's some more subtle ways that we chase after signs instead of our Savior. We might have a mountaintop experience at a weekend retreat or, or a church service where God really showed up in a, in a big way, we might say, where his presence was clearly felt. But then at the next church service, when everything's sort of status quo, we feel a sense of letdown or disappointment, like longing for that, what we had last week. We start craving more mountaintop moments. These are, are, are now, the, 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 these experiences, they're good, right? Sometimes God really does show up in a big way. Sometimes there is an overwhelming sense of his presence. And that's a good thing. It can really bolster our faith when they're kept in their proper place. But when we begin to, to base our relationship with Jesus on our personal experiences, then we become more like the Galileans, chasing after the signs, trying to get our next fix. The Galileans were self-indulgent in their curiosity as they welcomed Christ. Oh, this is the guy that we saw down in Jerusalem. Remember what he did there? I wonder what he'll do here. I want to tell you that I'm, I'm prone to that same mentality. Where, where the self-indulgent curiosity sort of gets the best of me. As a pastor, I have a biblical calling and a privilege to devote myself to the ministry of the word in prayer. That, that's what it says in, in Acts for the, for the elders in the book of Acts. But it can be easy for me to devote myself to the study of the word to satisfy my own curiosity rather than use it to minister to others. And, and yes, preaching on Sunday mornings is ministry of the word, but that's not the only ministry of the word that the Bible calls me to. Pastoring others, walking alongside you as you go through your joys and your sufferings and, and you experience uh, these things and helping you look to Jesus through the scriptures in the midst of those things, that's also ministry of the word. 
we can think of it this way. If, if preaching is the public ministry of the word, then pastoring is the personal ministry of the word. And because I love to study, sometimes that study becomes self-indulgent curiosity that causes my personal ministry to suffer, and I'm sure many of you have felt that. It's easy for me to justify it by thinking, if I don't read this resource, I might, I might miss something that my people need to know. As if I can give you all that God has to offer in his, in his word in a particular passage on a Sunday morning. But a couple weeks ago, a dear brother in the Lord and a fellow pastor, a partner in the gospel who's, who's coaching me, training me, helping me grow as a pastor and a preacher, gave me a loving rebuke. We need those. You need somebody who can do it well. That's hard to find, but I found a guy. And he gave me one, exactly what I needed to hear. He helped me think differently. Instead of thinking, if I don't read this resource, then I might miss something that my people need to know. Now I'm starting to think, listen, if I spend more time, if I do read this resource, then I might miss the people that I need to know. It's taking my time away from them. It, it, if I have enough, if I, if I understand what the passage is about and, 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 and I'm able to preach it and, and help you apply it, then that's good. Because I want you to dig into the word yourself and I want to dig into it with you and maybe we can go deeper in a passage together throughout the week instead. I'm thankful for God's grace to help me see that. And I'm, I'm depending upon God's grace to help me grow in that. So that's how you can pray for me. You know, I never get to fill out one of those care cards. I always forget about it, and I keep telling you to do it. But it, didn't, it doesn't get passed up here. That's not, my, that's not a good excuse, right? Please, seriously, though, pray for me that way. I, I need a better balance that I can know Christ through his word and help others know him through his word, not just from the stage on Sunday mornings, but actually in your living rooms or, or in my living room or on a car ride somewhere or wherever. Maybe, though, you can relate to my self-indulgent curiosity. Here's some diagnostic questions for you. Do you spend more time listening to sermons and podcasts online than you do to the joys and the sorrows of your brothers and sisters right here at Redeemer? Do you read articles and blog posts more than you, than you open up God's word together with the people around you? Theological knowledge is a good thing. It's a necessary thing, but it becomes a self-indulgent thing when we pursue it at the expense of others instead of with the help of others alongside them. Let's continue then to grow in God's grace together as people who guard against self-indulgent and superficial faith that welcomes Jesus as much as possible, that we binge Jesus out of curiosity and entertainment. Instead, let's grow together as people who truly bring honor to Christ with increasing our dependence upon him and our commitment to him. Now, the Galileans welcomed Jesus because they saw signs that he did in, in Jerusalem. But not everybody in Galilee sought out Jesus for entertainment. One man came to him in an emergency. Let's look at verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, the Galileans were excited. This royal official was desperate. Have you ever been there? They wanted to see more miracles for the intrigue. This man was in need of a miracle or his son would die. There's a big difference. If they didn't get what they wanted, they could just walk away and find something else to do. The text doesn't tell us whether he was a Jew or a Gentile, but it's likely that he served under King Herod. And and because of his position, he probably had access to the best medical help, the best doctors, all of that, that, that money could buy. And yet none of them could help his son. Now, was it wrong for this man to come to Jesus and ask Jesus to save his son? Of course not, right? Listen, what parent who's at their wit's end who's exhausted all other options, what parent wouldn't cry out to God and say, if you don't do something, my child will die? And at first glance, Jesus' response in verse 48 to this man's plea seems kind of harsh, right? Like, wow, really? He doesn't even acknowledge the, the, the boy he goes right to this, to this thing. If you, if you, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. But this is where it's important for us to remember that Jesus is not only fully man, but he's also fully God, and he knows what's in this, inside the heart of every man. Jesus is never wrong in his assessment of somebody. I am wrong in my assessment of people. You are wrong in your assessment of people at times. Jesus is never wrong. When he looks at the human heart, he knows what's in man. And he speaks to that truth, that reality. Jesus didn't respond this way out of a lack of care for this man or his son or his family. In fact, quite the opposite. Jesus responded this way precisely because he cared about this man and his son and he knew the deeper need that was there. Jesus said, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Notice he he swept the man up into uh, the Galileans as a whole. He was no different than the rest of the Galileans. Even though they, 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 uh, he didn't come for, to, to Jesus for entertainment, he still came looking for a miracle. And in his mind, Jesus was the miracle worker. Like the rest of the Galileans, this man was looking past the Savior to the sign. He wanted to stop where the sign was and think he was there. They craved the miracles. The Galileans and this man, this royal official, they craved the miracles instead of the one who does them. Now, again, is it wrong to ask Jesus for a miracle? Is it wrong for us to come to him in desperation and plead with him in our deepest need to save a loved one from sickness and death or anything else that we are in, in, a dire, uh, in dire need for? It's not wrong. But if we only come to him for a miracle, then we're also guilty of looking past the Savior to the signs. You see, we can't, we can't merely treat Jesus like a first responder where he's the one that we call when we need help. But we only call him when we have an emergency. 
Our faith must never be dependent upon whether or not Jesus heals a disease or saves someone from death or solves all of our problems in life. We should never assume that if we just have a little more faith, then Jesus will always do what we ask. Sometimes we ask with the wrong motives. James tells us that. Nor should we withhold our faith as a ransom unless Jesus gives us a sign. Unless you do this, it's on you. When we do these things, we're looking to Jesus as the miracle worker and not the Messiah. We must crave the one who does the miracle more than we crave the miracles themselves. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. That's part one. Let's look at part two. Real faith is dependent upon Christ alone. Look at verse 49. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Now, verse 48, Jesus, Jesus makes this, uh, this accusation that's spot on. But the man completely ignores it. At least it seems like that, right? And he just presses in further. Listen, you, are you coming or not? In this, in this guy's mind, the, the clock was ticking. It's about a day's walk from, from Cana to Capernaum, and, and they were running out of time. And so the official demanded, listen, come with me or my boy will die. Come with me before he dies, as if to suggest that it would be Jesus' fault if that happened. Now, we all have those times where we want Jesus to follow us, don't we? But we need to be the ones that follow him. That's the call. We don't direct Jesus. He directs us. What does he do here? Just like he does with us, he graciously reminds us of what's important. And that grace... That grace sometimes doesn't feel very pleasant. Think about this for a minute. Can you just, just put yourself there like, a, like, a, like a, a bystander hearing this? This man is having this back and forth with Jesus. He's pleading with him. And then feel, can, can you just feel the crushing weight of the first word that comes out of Jesus' mouth in response? Go. Go. The man had traveled all that way. He was missing valuable time with his son who was sick and going downhill fast. He might not make it home in time, right? He pleaded with Jesus to come back to him, but Jesus' response wasn't, all right, let's go. It was go, as in you go, and I'm, I'm not going. I'm staying here. I'm not coming with you. Now, who knows how long of a pause there was between that first word and the rest of what Jesus said. But, but even if you read it in the, in the verse here, there's a break. Go, Jesus said. Right? Can't you feel that tension? You want to know what's going to come next. Is that it? Is he done? But then those other words came. And that's all this man needed to hear. Go. Your son will live. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and he headed home by himself. Let's not miss the compassion of Jesus here. 
Let's not overlook what it is that he's doing. He's not being harsh to this man. He's not unsympathetic to the man's concern. It wasn't that, that Jesus was annoyed that he had to heal someone else. If we look at all the other gospels, we'll see multiple accounts where Jesus willingly heals many, many, many people from sickness, from, from uh, lifelong uh, ailments, casting out demons, raising people from the dead. Next week, we're going to see him heal a paralyzed man, chapter 5, paralyzed for 38 years. You want to walk? That's what he asks him. Do you want to walk? Read it before we get there next week. In fact, the entire Bible ends with a beautiful picture of Christ wiping away every tear, removing all pain and suffering and death forever to those, uh, for those who trust him. That's where we're headed. He cares about that. But here's what we need to be careful not to miss right here in this passage because we're not at the end of the Bible yet. Jesus' primary concern is not relief from suffering. It's the redemption of sinners. Jesus' primary concern is not relief from suffering. It's the redemption of sinners. When we are redeemed, then we get to all of that stuff. Sometimes he does that stuff before we get there. But his primary concern is not relief from suffering. It's the redemption of sinners. He's first concerned with changing hearts before he's concerned with changing circumstances. Notice that I said first and not only. He's not hard-hearted toward your suffering. He's not hard-hearted toward my suffering. Even in those times when he doesn't relieve us from it, he actually loves us so much that sometimes he's willing to leave our circumstances unchanged in order to deepen our dependence upon him and teach us to rest in him. And sometimes he changes our hearts by changing our circumstance. Sometimes. Look at verse 51. While he was still going down to Capernaum, his servants met him saying this, that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this is also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Jerusalem to Galilee. You know that, that big thump in your chest that you feel when you think that you're about to get some really bad news? Like you, you see somebody coming and you're like, oh man, this isn't good. You've been there, right? It's not just me. Imagine that. This man's running home. He believed Jesus' words, but now he sees his servants running out. His heart starts pounding. Like, what are they going to say? Even though we believe Sometimes what Jesus says, until we actually see that bear fruit, we kind of wonder if it's actually true sometimes, don't we? But then imagine as, he, as they, they run closer and, and he gets to see the smiles on their faces and they, they yell out, hey, your son's alive. Then his heart starts pounding with excitement, with joy. What he did, what he said, he did. 
text doesn't say why this man asked what time the boy got better, but if it happened while he was still on his way to see Jesus, then it'd be really hard for him to give Jesus the credit for it, wouldn't it? So maybe John puts that in there so that that we can also tie this in and see. But it happened. It happened at the very moment that Jesus said, your son will live. Listen, this man wanted Jesus to come with him so he could heal his son. It was unheard of to think that somebody could heal somebody without actually being there. It wasn't unheard of that somebody could heal somebody. But he needed Jesus with him. And you know what? Jesus was with him when he healed his son. He just didn't have to make a day trip to Capernaum to do it. The man was with Jesus when Jesus said, your son will live. And no sooner did those words come out of his mouth than it actually happened. Jesus speaking is his doing. And then what happened? When the man realized that that was the very moment, that was the very hour that the fever broke when Jesus spoke those words, not only then did he believe, but then so did his wife and his son and his servants and every other member of his household. Jesus changed many hearts with one miracle. And isn't that what he came to do all along? Yes, he performed many miracles while he walked this earth. So many that that John, at the end of the gospel, we'll see, is like, listen, if we put them all down, not even enough books would be able to contain all the things that Jesus did. He doesn't even fully mention all the things that Jesus did anyway. Just says he did signs in Jerusalem. That's what the Galileans were chasing after. We have no idea what those were. But it's the miracle that Jesus didn't perform that brings about true heart change for many people. Listen, Jesus is the son who died. But it wasn't because he was ill. It was because he bore our sickness, our sin, as he took it to the cross and died in our place. He could have performed a miracle. He could have taken himself down off the cross, but he refused to do that one because he knew better. He knew that we needed something more. He refused to change his circumstances so that he could change our hearts. He refused to save himself so that he could save those of us who had no honor for him, but who had great need for him. And after dying for our sins and being buried in a tomb, on the third day, another miracle happened. Jesus rose from the grave, walked out of the tomb, And he did that in order to bring eternal life to all who put their faith, not in his miracles, not in the signs, but in Christ himself. So we need to ask the question, is your faith in him? There's a very very important difference. Hear me. There's a very important difference between coming to see Jesus for your need and coming to see your need for Jesus. Huge difference. Don't miss what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's calling for belief that looks beyond the signs to him, to himself. Don't miss Jesus. He's the main point here. Don't come to him and then leave if he doesn't give you what you want. Come to him and stay because he's everything that you need 
real faith is dependent upon Christ alone. And so what, what Christ himself is calling us to this morning is to put our superficial faith to death, to turn from our sin, to trust in Jesus. Are you willing to do that this morning? Or are you just chasing after signs? Real faith is not a single moment thing. It's a moment after moment thing. We're prone to want to try to pinpoint when someone became a believer. Oh yeah, he walked the aisle, prayed a prayer 15 years ago, right? But in the last 15 years, there's been no real evidence of faith. No, no growing desire to put sin to death. No growing desire to spend time with Jesus uh, by reading his word. No growing desire to, to commit uh, himself or herself to a, a local body of Christ to walk with Jesus together. No tangible fruit that this person's heart has truly been changed by Jesus. When did this royal official believe? Was it in verse 50 or 53? Does it matter? We want we to like, try to figure that out sometimes, right? Both verses say he believed. The beginning of, of, of belief is certainly important, right? If we're to receive forgiveness for our sins and have eternal life in Christ, then at some point we need to go from unbelief to belief. There has to be a change of heart somewhere in there. But if we can't pinpoint, even if we can't pinpoint the single moment when we first believed, our initial belief is only validated by our continuing belief. Real faith keeps going. Real faith keeps going. We don't come to Christ once. We keep coming to him over and over, not by praying a prayer or walking an aisle multiple times, but by steadily growing in our dependence upon him and our confidence in him over time. One day after the next. One moment after the next. That's intimidating, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like it's on us to keep that momentum. We don't want to mess up. But even as believers, we know this, we recognize this because it's true. Every, every one of us as followers of Christ will still have moments of unbelief, moments where our sin seems to promise more than Jesus does. Moments where fear of the unknown or our desire to run from suffering causes us to make demands or threats of Jesus instead of trusting and resting in him. Moments where we choose superficiality because honesty is, is just way too hard. But having real faith means that we don't continue in unbelief. We continue in belief. We repent of the unbelief. We repent of the sin that Christ lovingly and graciously and sometimes in difficult ways exposes into our lives, exposes us. And we look again to Jesus. Why? Because he's right there. He's committed. He's not going anywhere. And we do that regardless of whether or not he gives us a sign. See, signs aren't, they're not unimportant, right? We don't need to ignore them altogether. John actually framed his gospel around them, but he only gave the details of seven of them. Because the thrust of John's gospel is not for his readers to believe the signs. The thrust of John's gospel 
is for his readers to believe in Jesus. Do you remember John chapter 20? The whole point, he tells us, verses 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. Like, you know what? Those don't matter right now. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs are not the person. The signs direct us to the person. The signs validate who Christ is and they urge us to believe in what he says. But the signs are not necessary in order for us to believe. Listen, if they were necessary then we'd have to go back to the passage about the Samaritans and conclude that none of them actually had real faith in Jesus. Remember John 1, 11, and 12? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. No honor, right? But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believed in his signs? No to those who believed in his name. Real faith is not dependent upon signs alone. Real faith is dependent upon Christ alone. He's more than a miracle worker. He's the Messiah. He's the king. Let's not mistake the sign for the person. Let's come to the Savior for the Savior himself. Let's continue to welcome his heart-changing work in our lives as we grow steadily. Yes, up and down, but steadily over the course of time. And welcome his heart-changing work in our lives, growing in dependence upon him and in confidence in him so that we can give him the honor that he's due. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that not only reveals what Jesus did, but who Jesus is. And we pray that you would use this to draw our hearts closer to you, to come humbly, joyfully, steadily to Jesus over and over and stay there with him, that we might know him better. Lord, if you give us signs, help us not to miss who they're pointing to. And if you don't, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We love you, and we pray this in his name. Amen.